Let's uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer, please. Father, thank you for this time that we can sit before your word. Lord, pray that you will bless the preaching of your word as uh, we have already prayed. So I ask that Jesus would be made much of and this body would be helped. In Jesus' name, amen. Please turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. As you're turning there, um, I want to inform you what I'm doing tonight. The title of my message this evening is The Gravitational Center of Heritage Baptist Church. Sounds like kind of a brazen title. Because <laughs> it assumes, actually, that I know what the Gravitational Center of Heritage Baptist Church is. And I don't. I don't know. But I do know what the Gravitational Center of Heritage Baptist Church should be. So, hence the title, the Gravitational Center of Heritage Baptist Church. Colossians chapter 1, I want to read together verses um, 13 through 23. Let's begin in verse 13. It says this, reading from the English Standard Version. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He, speaking of Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. And in Him all things hold together, and He is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And you... And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of the flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if, if indeed you continue in the faith. Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel, that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. The word if in verse 23 is scary. And I'm going to hang my message tonight on verse 23, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Because what the Bible says, Paul says, is that he has reconciled you through his body, of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if if you remain steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Which means we have our greatest responsibility as a church is not to shift from the hope of the gospel. I mean if there if there can there be possibly a more important thing for us to consider than not shifting from the hope of the gospel. It is absolutely necessary. So tonight the, the reason why my, the title of my sermon is The Gravitational Center of Heritage Baptist Church is because my thesis is this, is that the gravitational center of our church must be the gospel. 
And when I say gravitational center, what I mean is if you look that up, a definition of what that means, a gravitational center is the, is the source of where strength comes from. It's, 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 the, it's the center, it's, where, it's the balance, where everything is in perfect balance, and it is the source where strength comes from. So the gravitational center of our church then is, this is all that we do centers around this message of the gospel. Now, I want to begin with a question, and the question is very simple, it's this, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? When we ask this question, what we're doing is, essentially, we're asking two things. Number one, first, what is, what is the message that a person must believe in order to be saved? That's the first thing we mean by what is the gospel. The second thing we mean is, what is the whole good news of Christianity? Okay, so question one is really answering the question, what, what do I need in order to be saved? And question two is saying, what's the whole good news of Christianity? So the first question is the gospel as it's more narrowly defined, whereas the second question is the gospel as it's more broadly defined. Let, let, me, let me paint a word picture for you, okay? Imagine there's a door here, and on the door is inscribed the words of Colossians 1.23, never shifting from the hope of the gospel. Let's assume that this door, we'll call it a gospel door. And on that door, there are two hinges. There's a hinge at the top and a hinge at the bottom. And that door of the gospel turns on two hinges, and the first hinge is the broad message of the gospel. That is the reconciliation or the restoration of God's whole creation. Look at verse 20. That's hinge number one, verse 20. That's the reconciliation or restoration of God's whole creation. Now, the second hinge represents the more narrow message of the gospel, that is the reconciliation of individuals to God. That's verse 21 and 22. Verse 21 and 22. So, here, here's what I'm doing here. We're talking about the gospel, and we're talking about both of its broad and narrow aspects. Now, unfortunately, in our day and age, we cannot take our definition of the gospel for granted. Because something troubling is taking place today. And it's what I want to call the silencing and the shifting of the gospel. Both the silencing and the shifting of the gospel. What do I mean by this? Here's what I mean by shifting of the gospel. I mean the gospel today is changing. It's taking on new shapes. It's being redefined. It's being recast. It's being reconfigured, supposedly to be more accepting or more palatable to the postmodern ear. So the gospel is undercurring change. People are changing it, redefining it. And the silencing of the gospel, what I mean by that is, is that pastors all too often assume that we understand what the gospel is, and so they don't reiterate the message of the gospel, and when the gospel is not clarified and defined, then it's open to attack. And I'm greatly concerned about both the shifting and the silencing of the gospel. Listen to Mark Dever from his book, excellent book, The Deliberate Church. He says this, Many new pastors of old churches assume a rudimentary understanding of the gospel in the Christian life among the flock. But assumption on our part too often leads to presumption on theirs. That is, when we assume the gospel instead of clarifying it, people who profess Christianity but don't understand or obey the gospel are cordially allowed to presume their own conversion without examining themselves for evidences of it, which may amount to nothing more than a blissful road to damnation. It's a powerful quote. And friends, that's why we try to clarify the gospel every Sunday, week after week from this pulpit. We do it in the songs we select. Thank you. Thank you, Dave, for doing that. We do that in, 
in we do that in our care groups, our pre-marriage counseling. We do that in our membership classes and baptism interviews because we live or we die by this message. And that's why it's to be the heart of our church. But think about this. Here's the scary reality. If the gospel, if this news really is the difference between life and death, heaven and hell, the worship of God and the worship of idols, then do you not think that the devil, conspiring together with the world, conspiring together with our own flesh, will do everything in its power to stop this news from going forth? And if it can't stop it, then change it. And if it can't change it, then scramble it. And if it can't scramble it, then reinterpret it. And if it can't reinterpret it, then dilute it. And if it can't dilute it, then distract us from it, so that even if we believe it, we don't pay much attention to it. In other words, if this news is the difference between salvation and damnation, don't you think that this news will be the number one target of the enemy? And it's for this reason that our, our job as pastors, our number one job, our calling, our primary calling is to spend our entire life cherishing, protecting, proclaiming, and rehearsing this message to our people so that you will likewise cherish, protect, proclaim, and rehearse that message. That's our job. Now, I want to say something about a word. What I want to do in the remainder of our time is I want to look at two false gospels that are common in our day. Not because I'm concerned that you have bought into these false gospels, but that you presumably you are out sharing Christ with your coworkers on a weekly basis. At least that's your desire. So you need to know how the world is thinking about the gospel, and I hope that this will help and I trust in your evangelistic opportunities. Plus, this has lots of implications for us as a church. So that's where we're going. We're going to talk about two false gospels, and then we're going to talk about the message of the gospel from First Corinthians, or sorry, from Colossians one. All right. So, so track with me here. Number one. Number one. First, the gospel is not the message that God wants you to be prosperous in this life. Right. The good news is not that Jesus intends to fill your life with blessings. You know, your best life now. And I emphasize the word now. I found that interesting. The title of the book is Your Best Life Now. Isn't that interesting? What about your best life to come? It should be more important, but the point is here, though this seems obvious to us, it's actually quite subtle for the world. Here's what happens. Preachers end up telling people that joy and happiness are found in the same places that culture tells us joy and happiness are found. All right? Society tells us that we can have health and wealth, and that message has always been a winner. Always. Wherever you go, it's a winner. It's a winner in third world countries. Everybody wants riches. Everybody wants health. So what happens is prosperity preachers come along and they repackage the message. And perhaps the most famous prosperity preacher of our day puts it this way, and I quote, God wants you to have total victory. And not only health, but finances. You can have this because you're a child of the king and God didn't create you to be average. You have to just embrace the right vision. You can walk in divine health, and we are victors and not victims. Because we have rights and privileges as God's children. And at the top of that list is total victory. Well, let's think through that. Where's Jesus in that? See, whatever definition of a good life people may have, it better be big enough to include Jesus. 
If God's plan for us is that we would be rich and prosperous and have enough money to pay our bills, then what does that say about Jesus who was born into a poor family, who was born in a stable, hungry, and at times having no place to lay his head? What about Jesus' relationships? Were they always warm and comfortable? Did Jesus always have whole relationships? Were his relationships comforting? No, his family disowned him. His friends abandoned him. Judas betrayed him. And the crowd screamed, crucify him. Now, I don't want to overstate my case here, but it sounds to me like Jesus had a little bit of relational conflict in his life. How about, how about the issue of pain? The prosperity gospel says you, don't, you shouldn't have pain. Did Jesus ever suffer physical pain? How about this? Jesus was beaten. He was whipped. His beard was plucked out. Crown of thorns, Pastor T's message last Sunday, was, was pressed down on his head. He was scourged, spit upon, nailed to a tree, and speared through his side. That's excruciating pain. Now, I wanna, what I want to do is share with you what John Piper has to say about the prosperity gospel. I love this. And instead of just reading this as a quote, I'm going to preach his words as if he were preaching it. All right? This is what he says. I don't know what you feel about the prosperity gospel, the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, but I tell you what I feel about it. Hatred. Hatred. It's not the gospel. It's being exported from this country to Africa and Asia and South America, selling a bunch of goods to the poorest of the poor, saying, believe this message and your pigs won't die. And your wife won't have miscarriages and you'll have rings on your fingers and coats on your back. And that's coming out of America. The people who ought to be given of their time and their money instead are selling them a bunch of garbage called gospel. And here's the reason why it's so horrible. When's the last time that any American or Asian ever said to you, Jesus is all satisfying to me because you drove a BMW? Never. Never. You know what they'll say? Did, did, did Jesus give you that? Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll take Jesus. That's idolatry. That's, that's elevating gifts above the giver. I'll tell you what makes Jesus look beautiful. It's when you smash your car and your little girl goes flying through the windshield and lands dead on the street for three hours before the police can let her, can find her, and you say, through the deepest possible pain, God is enough. God is enough. He is good. He will take care of us. He will satisfy us. He will get us through this. He is our treasure. Whom have I in heaven but you, O Lord? And on earth there is nothing I desire beside you. My flesh may fail and my heart and my little girl may fail, but you are the strength in my portion forever. That makes God glorious, not as the giver of health and wealth. Amen to that. I mean, how I pray, people of God, how I pray that God would purge this world of the prosperity gospel. Then, then, this is what happens. These prosperity guys will then come along and they'll say, yeah, 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 but you see, see, Jesus took all that pain and disease and suffering for us so that we don't have to go through any of that. Really? I mean, did we just cut Matthew 10.24 out of our Bibles? Which says, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. If Jesus suffered, and he's your example, and you're his disciple, then guess what? We better buckle up and put on our chin strap, because in this life, God has called us to suffer. We, we, we've got to preach that way. I mean, that message has, 
It's like it's just evaporated from the church. So that's number one. Number two, the gospel is not moralism. You know, just that we should live rightly. Sadly, here's what's happened. The South, uh, this, this, this bastion, this Bible belt has been poisoned by this gospel of moralism. Uh, you know that. You grew up here. And, and it's infected tens and millions of us in the South, and we're still in the midst of a moralistic pandemic. Uh, who dispensed this poison? Preachers. These are men who shouted from pulpits and radio waves, and even in theaters, things like, God likes good people, and it's good to be good. Just Just be good. And for decades, churches were filled with ethical churchgoers who believe, who believe they are accepted by God because of their moralism. And so American churches are full of good-looking, upright, moral people. And the tragic irony is that their goodness is their poison because they're trusting in it. So many claim Christianity is their faith and they mimic righteousness on the surface, but their hearts remain unchanged by the gospel. And the gospel for them is either ignored or totally misunderstood. And they've satisfied their, their desire for God through morality. I mean, how sad is that? Allowing people to ignore their need for Jesus. And of course, the outcome of this is just disastrous. This has disastrous consequences for the church. We're, we're witnessing right now a major exodus from the local church. I mean, people are leaving in droves because they accepted that and they lived that way and it's empty. It's bankrupt. They're tired of pulling themselves up by their bootstraps and it's not working so they quit. I mean, how prophetic are the words in Revelation to, to the church of Laodicea? I know your works. You're neither hot nor cold, for you say, I am rich, I've prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Well, if that's the gospel, if that's, excuse me, if that's what the gospel is not, then what is the gospel? What is the gospel? See, we cannot continue to assume that we know the gospel. That's the very problem. So I want to make that explicit uh, tonight to us. I want to make that explicit. Because, see, people get, get confused. If you just talk about morality, and you emphasize morality, 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 and life change and behavior change, and, and even if you do that biblically from the, from, the, from the Word of God, and you don't connect that to the gospel, then what happens is people just start, they're just interested in change. Behavioral change, and it's not rooted in Jesus. And it just produces moralism. And actually what happens is people start scratching their heads and say, well, what's the difference between that and every other religion in the world? That's works-based. It's confusing to people. So we're going to look at the gospel. Look at Colossians 1, 15-23. I mentioned earlier that we have to make a distinction between the gospel as it's defined broadly and that as it's defined more narrowly. And what I want to do is use this category. The gospel of the cross is the narrow de- definition that's, that's God reconciling me to himself through Jesus. That's the gospel of the cross. Over here we have the gospel of the kingdom. That's, that's defined more broadly, which represents God's reconciliation of all things, all creation to himself. That's the renewed earth. That's God making all things new and recreating. So we have gospel of the cross and gospel of the kingdom. Let's start with the gospel of the cross. We're really familiar with this, but isn't it a great message? I love to rehearse the gospel. This is great. Listen to this. Colossians 1, 13 and 14. So good. So good. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Skip to 21. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death. 
So that's, that's the gospel of the cross. So when we speak in this way, we're talking in categories of God, man, Christ, response. We start with the fact that God is infinitely holy. He's beyond our understanding. He's completely other than us. He's perfect. He's pure. He's spotless. He's beautiful. And on the other hand, we are the exact opposite. We are not any of those things. So, so here's, the, here's, the, here's the wild thing. is that even our, It's not that our wickedness is so bad. That's bad. It's bad. But in the Bible, it's that our righteousness is bad. See, that, that's, what, that's, that's the problem. Our righteousness is wicked. And that ought to rattle us. See, we were brought forth in iniquity, and even our righteousness is viewed as unclean. And because of this, we deserve to go to hell. So, God in His love sends Christ to the cross. Jesus goes willingly. He absorbs, He goes willingly. Don't miss that. He goes willingly, and I'm going to come back to that in a minute. Absorbs God's wrath toward those who will put their faith in Him, so that those who respond in faith and repentance will be saved. This is what's taught in 1 Corinthians 13, 14, and 21 and 22. We know that message. We love that message. Now, the gospel of the kingdom, this is the gospel at, if you're flying, this is 30,000 feet. This is what we call the meta narrative of Scripture. That's just a big word that means the grand story of the Bible, under which that grand story, under which the, the story of the cross comes. Now, look at Colossians. This is Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Look at these verses. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And here's the verse. And through him to reconcile to himself all things. All things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So when we speak of the gospel in this way, we're talking in categories of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. This is the whole good news of the gospel. See, creation asks the question, how did we get here? The fall asks the question, what went wrong? Redemption asks the question, can it be fixed? And restoration asks the question, where is all this going? So we start with creation. God created everything, that is, and he declared it good. Now all that creation was meant to stir our affections and love for God, just like this, friendship, food, family, all these things God has given us, that's meant to stir our affections for God. They all declare His glory. They're all designed to point us to Him because all things were created, the text says, by Him and for Him. For Him. All things. So all things are meant to terminate, not on creation, but call forth the praises and worship of God. But here's the problem. The fall came. Creation fall. The fall came and sin entered the world and it inverts this so it turns it upside down so that as Romans says, we end up worshiping the creation instead of the Creator. And that's why food, instead of causing us to worship God, becomes gluttony or indifference, which is both wicked. If you're indifferent to food, that's wicked too. All right? So it's inverted. We're turned it upside down. That's why wine is abused and becomes alcoholism. That's why sex becomes lust 
or indifference in the marital relationship sexually is strained as well. It's why the whole creation begins to experience decay, and all of this because things are terminating on themselves when they're not meant to terminate on themselves, they're meant to terminate on the glory of God. They're all meant to be rolled up back into the glory of God. That's the point. So all, so here we have creation, fall, then redemption. Christ comes to make all things new. It's what the text says. All things. What things? All things, verse 20. He comes to make all things new in the cross, including this fallen creation. You see, Romans 8.22, even creation itself cries out for restoration. Okay, so all of this is occurring, and we're living in this tension of the already not yet. We're familiar with that language, the already not yet. But the restoration, this consummation, this is when, when that comes, that's when the not yet disappears and the already becomes complete. The not yet disappears, the already becomes complete. This is why we pray and fast and say, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. When we pray this, what we're praying is, Lord, come and end this. Even the creation is crying, Maranatha, come and end this. So what happens is the creation is restored and recreated and we have a new heavens and a new earth. So we have the gospel of the cross and the gospel of the kingdom. Now here's the problem. Here's the problem. Listen carefully to me. People love to pick on one of these aspects of the gospel, either the gospel of the cross or the gospel of the kingdom, and they want to run with that. And the problem with that is if you pick one and run with it, you'll reduce the gospel to that category and make all kinds of errors. Let me illustrate. So if you stay on the ground level, this is the gospel of the cross, and you never get into the air, the gospel of the kingdom, then the gospel message becomes completely individualistic. You know, God saves me. It's all about me. God's cross is about me. And you end up writing really silly worship songs like God loves me more than anything in the whole universe. Or that song, Like a Rose, that says, when Jesus was on the cross, he was thinking about me above all. You write silly things like that because you've become individualistic. You write these songs that aren't true, and the whole thing becomes so self-centered, so it's almost like the universe itself starts to revolve around you. Now, let me be clear. Let me be clear. There are elements of this that are true. The gospel, of course, does come on an individualistic level and forgives us of our sins and saves us from the wrath of God personally and individually. Praise God. We're not here if that's not true. All right? So, so don't, don't hear me saying that's not good. That's vital. But that's not the whole story. And in the end, it's a reduction of what the gospel is in its entirety. Staying at this level tends, us to, ca- tends to cause us to, to dry up uh, to God's larger, more global mission. And it keeps us from realizing that God is doing something much more than just saving you and me on the cross. Historically, this is where abuses like isolationism come in. Um, You know, this Jesus and me attitude. It's just me and Jesus. And it obscures the importance of the local church. This is what happens. Even the local church isn't important anymore because it's just me and Jesus. And as long as I'm saved, I'm going to heaven. I don't need the church. And all kinds of abuses come in through this. So you see the problem? Now, on the other hand, if you swing the pendulum all the way to the other side, you have just as many problems. Just as many problems. 
Like, if the gospel becomes social justice, that's not the gospel. If that becomes social justice, even though that's not the gospel, listen, your feeding of the poor and taking care of the needy and lonely or giving money to Haiti, as great as those things are, that's not the gospel. It's not the gospel and it doesn't save you. And historically what happened is in the late 1800s or 1900s, the early 1900s, the gospel started to become this thing that was simply about social mission. And, and so all of a sudden, justification by faith alone through the substitutionary death of Christ alone was lost, and we were left with a social gospel. That's what happened. All right, so where does that put us right now? Here, here's kind of what's happened. I'm just kind of giving you a history of what's going on in the church. Is that ten, The tendency right now is for conservatives like us, reformed conservatives like us, to emphasize the gospel of the cross, the ground level, you know, God, man, Christ in response, and that's right, and we need to do that. We need to push hard on that. So that's what we're doing right now. There's a lot of talk about substitutionary atonement, and it's good because Steve Chalk, this guy in England, is causing all kinds of waves about substitutionary atonement, saying that when Jesus went to the cross, uh, this was some kind of divine child abuse where God the Father was abusing the Son. And so they're denying substitutionary atonement all over England and it's like, hello, did, the Bible says that Jesus laid his own life down on his own accord. <laughs> Jesus walked to the cross, and for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. It's not like he is being spanked. I mean, how, just, this is just the ignorance that is, uh, that is in our, our, our society. Terrible theology. So we are emphasizing this substitution. It is so important that we emphasize this. But the problem is this, is that in our fear of letting the pendulum swing so far to the other side, the tendency for reform folks is to become fearful anytime we hear anything about social justice, or what I like to call just plain old biblical justice. Hate what God hates. Love what God loves. Have the heart that God has. Just biblical justice. I, I don't use the word social justice. This is just this is my preference, because I don't think it's helpful. It's got a lot of baggage and people tie it all up with liberalism and things. So I think the best way, the best term for this is just biblical justice. Just do what God loves. I mean, almost as soon as you start using that term, you'll start hearing somebody talk about the slippery slope to liberalism. But folks, look, here's the issue. Any doctrine taken out of context or abused or overstated or overstated is a slippery slope to error. Any doctrine... We're always just a step getting we're always just a step away from getting on that slope, and that's precisely why we need healthy churches that are confessional and preach sermons like this where we take time to clarify the gospel. But we have to live within the tensions of the Bible. We have to live and preach what the Bible teaches. So where does that leave us as a church? It means this if we're going to be gospel centered, what's that going to look like? Now I'm going to get to I'm going to get to real specific application in the last 10 minutes. Real specific. And I hope this will be really encouraging to your hearts. That's my desire. All right? A lot of this stuff is just help, meant to be helpful, but now I'm going to press hard on this for your encouragement. Listen, if we're going to be a gospel-centered church, I think it means this. Number one, we keep the gospel. This is what it means. We keep both the gospel of the kingdom and the gospel of the cross central to our life and doctrine. What does that look like? Practically speaking, what does that look like? 
First, I think it means we keep creation, fall, redemption, and restoration at the center of our lives. It means that as a church, we care about biblical injustice and social evil. We care. It means we get outside of ourselves and realize that the good news of the gospel is bigger than just me going to heaven. It means that we understand that in creation, here's what happened. Here's what happened. Adam was representing all of us when God tells him that he's to be fruitful and have dominion. So in Adam, God is giving mankind a mandate to take care of all of creation. So that man then has the responsibility to care for the world both physically and spiritually. And God made the physical and spiritual world, and he intends to redeem both of them. All right, so God created both the spiritual and the physical, and one day we'll have new bodies, and so we'll be redeemed both spiritually and physically, and the creation itself will undergo a redemption as heaven comes down to earth and experiences a new creation. So the Bible is really clear on the fact that our ministry and service to people is not just spiritual, but it's physical as well. We are to be stewards of all creation. That's creation. Now go to fall. So what happens is, as soon as Adam and Eve ate the fruit, four, at least four things happened. Number one, first they're alienated from God. They, they hide from God. Secondly, they're alienated from themselves. What happens is they begin to experience inward conflict. Sin, the results of sin, guilt, a guilty conscience, this inward conflict. And as Paul says, the things that I want to do, these are the things that I find myself doing, but the things I don't want to do... The things I don't want to do, that's what I do. And the things I, I do, that's what I, what I don't want to do. I'll, so, <laughs> so twist it up. <laughs> but you know what I'm talking about. That's why you need to read the manuscript. So what happens is this, is that we're alienated from ourselves. The third thing that happens is that we're alienated from each other. Right? We, we have constant... So Adam and Eve start fighting in the garden. This is your fault. No, no, it's the serpent's fault. No, it's your fault. No, it's the serpent's fault. And they fight. So they're alienated first from God, alienated from themselves, inward conflict, alienated from each other. And fourthly, the result of sin is physical alienation. We die, we get sick, and we age. So our fall into sin carries with it spiritual, psychological, social, and physical results. And we know that when we get to the end of time that God does not just take us out of earth and just sort of usher us up into heaven, but that heaven comes down to earth, purify the earth, and we have a new creation, which means God's redemptive purposes are to deal with all the results of sin, not just the spiritual results of sin. Therefore, it makes sense then for Christians to desire to work on all effects of sin, including those that are physical and social. Now, let me be clear again. We're evangelists first. We're first evangelists, we're first preachers, and we're to work on spiritual alienation first because it's the most urgent matter. But in the end, we minister in both word and deed, and these go together. And so we need this meta-narrative, this gospel of the kingdom. Secondly, if we're going to be a gospel-centered church, it means we need to keep God, man, Christ response, the gospel of the cross, center of our lives, both individually and corporately. What does that mean? It means this. Individually, in your Christian life, that you don't wander into the wasteland of religion and performance as a means of trying to earn favor with God. It also means that you don't overcorrect and start chasing after the pleasures of the world in an attempt to satisfy your infinite longings with finite things that won't satisfy. 
So the gospel of the cross keeps you from both of those pitfalls. As a church, corporately, being gospel-centered means that we let our gospel-centered theology, listen carefully, we let our gospel-centered theology translate into a gospel-centered sociology. How we live together, how we conduct our lives together as a church family. Look, how we, can, how we live and talk together, how we do life together, reveals what we really believe about the gospel as opposed to what we think we believe about the gospel. In other words, it's possible to say we're a gospel-centered church and sincerely mean it while we make our church into a law-centered, condemning social environment. That is possible. If we're trigger-happy toward one another, it's because we don't get it. We don't get the gospel. A gospel-centered theology will create a gospel-centered sociology a gospel-centered sociology lives out a gospel-centered theology. Our life changes. So look around. Do we have a gospel-centered social environment? Is our fellowship gospel-centered? Are we quick to point out evidences of grace? Are we quick to serve? Are we humble men and women? Are we quick to, or are we quick to cut down and criticize and condemn? And here we need to examine our individual responsibility to this body. But what would it look like if we had a gospel-centered environment on a consistent basis around here? I think, for starters, it would mean that we would live authentic lives in front of each other. More authentic lives, I should say. We, we are living authentically. But more. This, this, see, we, we tend to live, have this comfortable distance that we maintain between us. You know what I'm talking about, where we don't want to invade someone else's spiritual space. We want to maintain a comfortable distance and the fact is, I think our unwillingness to confess our sins and struggles to each other is an indicator that our self-worth and identity is not rooted in the gospel. It's rooted in performance and external appearance. If we are unwilling to be discipled by one another, it's because our spiritual space has been invaded. We're not trusting in the gospel. See, being gospel-centered means instead of staying at the, at the top of the stairs, looking down at those who are pursuing, uh, to kill, who are trying to kill sin and trying to grow in their Christian life, we come down the stairs and we get into the living room with our brothers and sisters and we fight against our sin. And we invite their help to do that. It means that we start finding our identity in the gospel of Christ and not in impressing God or others. You see, when we fail to share our lives with each other, especially especially our failures, we're refusing to allow the gospel of Christ to accomplish its full work of redemption in us. Jesus frees us from trying to impress God or others because Jesus impressed God himself. He earned righteousness for us on our behalf. So, friends, in the end, it's not about your performance. It's not about who we are uh, your performance, but it's about who we are. It's about the fact that we are imperfect pe- people clinging to a perfect Christ while being perfected in His grace daily. And that's great news for us. That is great news for us. So let's climb out of the our pretend coach's corner where we're, we're a coach, we can coach others, and let's get into the ring with our brothers and sisters and start conquering the flesh that wars against us. We have to be humble enough to get into the ring. See, being gospel-centered as a church means, then, being a church that's about Jesus above everything else. That sounds so obvious. Listen, this sounds so obvious. 
But we can become an issue-driven church. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, this is a place, uh, issue-driven churches are places where you get it all right on paper. But what drives you are the issues and not Jesus. Some churches are driven by numbers. Their desire to see people come to Christ can lead to pragmatism that gives the nod to anything that results in more people coming through the front door. We will do anything to get more people to come through the front door. Pragmatism. Some churches are driven by a desire to be culturally relevant, while others are driven by a desire to remain as culturally distinct as possible. Both of which are issues. Both In both cases, something other than the cross is capturing their major attention. And some churches are driven by doctrinal purity. In the pursuit of truth, some churches unwittingly become more enamored with their theological heritage than the founder and perfecter of their faith itself, himself. And how sick is that? Now, don't misunderstand me. Gospel-centered churches, they don't forsake these things, but it's just that that we're not driven by them. We are driven by a love for the gospel. Let me make this suggestion to us tonight. Let me suggest that to the the degree that we are issue-driven and not gospel-driven, we are deformed. And that's not good. And, And may God help us. See, because we can build a ministry around these things, and people will come. You can build your ministry around all kinds of issues, and people will come. But if any of those things become our center of gravity, our gravitational center, and not the gospel, then this ministry will ultimately fail. Friends, the gospel is our greatest hope and boast. It's our deepest longing and joy. It's our most passionate song and message. When we are gospel-centered, Jesus is exalted above every good thing, which strips away both individual and corporate idols, because he's better than all those things. And he triumphs over every bad thing that's set against us. This is what the gospel does for us, and I close. The gospel reminds us that it's not our performance, but Christ. It's not our sacrifices, but his sacrifice for us. It's not our superiority, but His worth and prestige. It's the good news of substitution. That our righteousness is not in us, but it's exterior to us in Christ alone. It's climbing down from our high moral ground, because only Christ belongs up there. People of God, that message, that awareness, that clarity, every Sunday. Every Sunday. May God help us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we give you praise and thanks for this precious gospel. Lord, we want to, we want to live in Colossians 1. We want, to, we want to relish and rejoice in the fact that our sins have been forgiven. We want that to change us and shape us. We want that gospel message to be our gravitating center of all that we do. Help us to that end in Jesus' name.